Um, thank you again for joining together this morning in worship. It continues to be a comfort to be with each of you. Um, after last week's service, I got an email from a pastor who's a friend to this congregation, and he said the best words he could use to describe what we were up to were raw and honest. And uh, I couldn't help but agree with him. Um, in a lot of ways, that's really what we were trying to do. We were trying to be honest about our loss. We were trying to dignify the work of grief and, and avoid the, the, the cliches that are, that are not very comforting that often surface in times like this, but also bear witness to the hope that we have as Christians. Um, and Psalm 25 was a guide for us in that, and we're grateful for it. This morning, what I want to do is touch base, just really sit on something that I felt like I didn't give enough treatment to last week, and it's just simply this. How does the reality of the resurrection of Jesus impact the way that we think about death? 1 Corinthians 15 says, Paul there is saying that if there's no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain, and our faith is in vain. And what Paul is saying there is that the, the reality of the resurrection of Christ in so many ways is really the linchpin of, of our faith. It, by it, so many things are held together right there. And if it didn't happen, then none of this matters. But if it did happen... It affects how we think about everything, and it especially affects how we think about the reality of death. And so this morning, I want to turn our attention to a story about how the resurrected Jesus, on the very day of his, resurre day of his resurrection, reveals himself to, to people that are deep in grief on the road from Jerusalem to Emmaus. Let's look together. This is Luke 24. I'll read verses 13 through 35. Hear the word of the Lord. That very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. And while they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, what is this conversation that you are holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still, looking sad. Then one of them, named Cleopas, answered him, Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? And he said to them, What things? And they said to him, concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty indeed, and word before God and all the people, and how our priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. 
And some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. And he said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So they drew near to the village to which they were going, and he acted as if he were going farther. But they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, for it is toward evening, and the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them, and when he was at table with them, he took the bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened, and they recognized him. And he vanished from their sight. And they said to each other, Did not our hearts burn within us when he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? And they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem. And they found the eleven, and those who were with them gathered together, saying, The Lord has risen indeed, and has appeared to Simon. And then they told what had happened on the road, and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let me pray. Jesus, you are known to us in the ways that you give us scriptures. You open eyes to scriptures and you feed us with the breaking of the bread. And I just pray you would do that amongst us now this morning. That you would teach us who you are and what it means for our day to day. That you would inscribe the truth of these things on our hearts and lead us in a way in the way of faith, trusting you with the weight of our lives. Would you be with us now? And would you help me, your servant, to love these friends well and to honor you, our Savior, with every word that is said? Help us now, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. So some of you already know this, um, but when I was in high school, I was was on the high school wrestling team. And uh, I, I... just want you to know that uh, there are pictures to verify this, but no, they will not be provided after the service to each of you. Uh, I wasn't very good anyway, and neither was our team, frankly. We were very young. But somewhere along the way, I think it was when I was a junior in high school, I um, ended up having to face off against the same guy who won um, the state championship for our weight class the year prior. And to say that I was intimidated by this guy was, is really to put it lightly. I mean, I don't know how he could have that many muscles and still be in our weight class. Uh, it was just an effort not to get psyched out. I remember saying to myself, uh, just wrestle hard. And if you go down, you go down, okay? But just don't let him psych you out before this thing even gets going. And I remember the coach's instructions in my ear, kind of like a blur, I remember my teammates looking at me with a a real sense of pity. I I remember the way the gym smelled. And uh, I remember being surprised when I actually made it through the first period. There are three periods in wrestling, and I survived the first period. And then I I was surprised again when I survived the second period and then got pinned in the third period. And I remember walking off thinking, you know, I think 
it's not as bad as I thought it was. <laughs> you know, like I went toe to toe with the best and I lived to tell about it. And I think I last, I, I think I did okay during that time. And that delusion came crashing down within a day or two when I was reviewing film on the match. And I realized that he was just practicing. In, in wrestling, sometimes you practice takedowns. You, you can win points by taking somebody down and letting them back up again. And that's what he was doing with me. I was a practice session for him. And I was working hard and didn't even know it. And, and he was at, I don't think he even broke a sweat. I was like the puppet. And he was just pulling on strings the whole time. And I'll tell you that when I, when I think of grief... That match comes to mind because I'm thinking of an enemy who's just having his way with you. And even though there are all kinds of resources available for how to understand grief, for understanding the stages of grief, and I even read an article that talked about conquering your grief. But the truth is, is that when we contend with grief, we're contending with something we're not wired to understand. Because if we're not built for death, as the Bible teaches us, then we're not built to understand grief. And this is what these disciples on the road were wrestling with as they were making their way from Jerusalem back to their hometown of Emmaus. They were trying to make sense of something that doesn't make sense. Verse 14 says, they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. And it's profound to me that the good news of Jesus' resurrection first came to those who were deep in their grief. I want to talk about this, the application of the truth of Jesus' resurrection to our grief in three ways, looking at this story. I want to talk about what these guys, what their, what their grief looked like. I want to talk about how Jesus approached them in their grief. And finally, I want to talk about what Jesus gives to the grieving. So what the grief looks like, what uh, Jesus' approach to the grieving, and then finally, what he gives to the grieving. First, what their grief looked like. At its most basic level, really contending with grief is contending with a loss in some ways. And I, I, I think that what we see here is the sense of compounding loss that comes when, it, when grief comes. Uh, the first thing they lost is unity. Uh, unity. There was, they lost that company of friends that they had uh, united around Jesus just a week before these two, Cleopas and the unnamed disciple, we, we don't know who that is. We think it might have been his wife. Um, but they were undoubtedly, almost certainly a part of the crowd of Jesus' disciples that were present in Jerusalem welcoming uh, Jesus into the town on Palm Sunday. And then as we watch the story of Jesus' Passion Week go forward, what, what, one of the things we see is Jesus getting lonelier and lonelier as his disciples begin to fall away. The crowd of disciples become less present in those stories. And eventually uh, the apostles in his midst start to fall away. 
And Jesus is becoming more and more alone until the night of his betrayal when even Peter, arguably Jesus' closest apostle, denies him three times. And the last scene is Jesus on the cross with only a few women who dared to be close to him in those moments. And so now what we see are two people who were once united to many around the cause of Jesus making the journey home no longer a part of the company of Jesus' disciples. The unity that had been forged around him had fallen apart. So he lost unity. They also lost trust. When Cleopas begins to explain who Jesus was, he starts in verse 19. He says that he was a prophet mighty in deed and word before God and all of his people. This meant that Cleopas understood Jesus to be in line as one of the great prophets of old, that he was the one who proclaimed the very words of God to God's people. And that mighty indeed simply means that he just went around doing good things, uh, that he would help people who were in need. And in verse 20, he says, but our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned for death. Now, this is very interesting because it would have been a simple thing to lay the blame for Jesus' death at the hands of the Romans. They were the executioners after all. But he doesn't mince words here. In his mind, the religious leaders were the ones who were responsible for the death of Jesus. Um, and, and in his mind, if Jesus truly was the, the promised Christ who was sent by God to redeem Israel then those who were religious leaders at the time should have been over the top and welcoming and excited about the movement of God in their very midst. And so there was an abrogation of the people's trust when the leaders put Jesus up to be crucified. And that's especially painful when the leaders in our faith betray us in that way. And it often leads to the next loss that we see. And that is a loss of hope. Look at verse 21. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. All their hopes for the future, for the future of their people, were attached to Jesus. And in their minds, all of these hopes that had been nurtured over years died with the cross. And so in this short little narrative, I think we see a few ways that the effects of grief are summarized in categories of loss. Loss of unity, loss of trust, loss of hope. Each of these, I think, show us ways that grief can compound our sense of loss. And some of that loss is easily evident to us in the moment, in the early moments of our grief. And some of those compounding senses of loss may be realized over the course of months and years. I think this is what C.S. Lewis was talking about. Um, he, was, he wrote about uh, considering the loss of a friend, a man named Charles Williams, and he said this, it's profound. In each of my friends, there is something that only some other friend can fully bring out. Uh, by myself, I'm not large enough to call the whole man into activity. Now that Charles Williams is dead... I shall never again see Ronald's, that's J.R.R. Tolkien, 
I shall never again see Ronald's reaction to a specifically Charles joke. Far from having more of Ronald to myself now that Charles is away, I actually have less of him. And one of the things I think he's talking about is just simply the ways that loss manifests itself in a variety of places as we deal with our grief. And we feel this. The compounding effects of loss can be profound. We can feel like we're alone in our grief. Grief can isolate us. Uh, Or like we don't know who we can trust anymore or what we can trust. It can scare us. Uh, And even harder, we can wonder if there's actually an endpoint in our grief. And it can be hard to know how to handle these feelings for ourselves and for each other. When people are suffering in grief, it is truly hard to know what to say or what to do. The words, I'm sorry, never feel like they're enough. Uh, The meals when received and efforts of care and comfort are good, but they never feel like enough. We know we can't give back what was lost. We can't make it right. So what do we have to offer? I think that's why it's very interesting to look at Jesus' approach to these grieving people on the road. Because the first thing that he did was he drew near to them. Look at verse 15. They were talking and discussing together. Uh, Jesus himself drew near and he went with them. He drew near And he stayed near, okay? The language used here suggests an animated conversation, okay? So this is like they're in this emotionally pitched dialogue with each other. Perhaps their voices were raised and everybody else on the road could hear them. There's likely a a massive pilgrimage away from Jerusalem at this point after the Passover. So we don't know how how alone they actually were. Um, Or their, their voices could be hushed. But either way, what it looks like is you've got two people in a very public place that are having a uh, publicly visible emotional dialogue. Um, And the anguish and bewilderment of the topic was publicly evident, okay? Now, let's say that you're in a public space and you see two strangers that you've never met before having a pitched emotional dialogue. It could be on the street. It could be in the mall, if anybody goes to the mall anymore. If you witness that, what do you do? You don't draw near, do you? Like you give them space, you kind of avoid them. You might even feel a little bit embarrassed for them. But Jesus draws near. In fact, he initiates with them. And he walked with them and he stayed with them. He is the embodiment of those sweet passages in the Psalms that say that the Lord draws near to the brokenhearted. That if I make my bed in the depths, you are there. Jesus is not uncomfortable with brokenness. He's not uncomfortable with his people's discouragement or despair. In fact, it almost looks like he's attracted to it. And when he draws near, he also draws out. Look at the conversation in verse 17. 
It's actually hilarious, okay? Verse 17, he says, what are you talking about? And you can almost see Cleopas and this other disciple looking at each other, asking if this guy's head has been in the sand. Are you the only one who doesn't know what's been going on around here these past few days? And then Jesus doesn't, like, he doesn't even show his cards. All he says is, what, what, what things? Now listen, we know Jesus has a lot to say to these people, don't we? In fact, and he does. But it's telling to me that it's halfway through the story before Jesus starts ministering to them with teaching. He first ministers to them with presence. And he draws near and he asks them questions and he just listens. He draws near and he draws them out. Jesus is giving us a lesson in what it looks like when he draws near to the grieving of what we need when we're brokenhearted. I was talking to a friend, uh, I think it was about a week ago, and he was sharing with me about a tremendous loss that he had endured years and years and years ago. And I asked him, what were the most meaningful things to you during that time. And he said he had particularly appreciated those who came and sat with him. And, the, and that's all they did. They sat with him in quiet spaces and listened to him as he processed what he was thinking. And they'd ask questions and then they'd just listen. There's a time for instruction, but it's not in those moments, right? They just asked questions and they listened. He particularly appreciated the way they drew near to him and the way they drew him out. And that's what Jesus did. And it's a beautiful and basic way in a time when nothing feels enough, like enough. It's a beautiful and basic way we can serve each other right now. And listen, I, I, a lot of people are doing this in our midst already right now. I want you to know I see that in a variety of ways and I'm proud of you. That's hard work and it's good work. But listen, if you're alone right now, I want you to come up and say hi to me after the service. There are people here, including me, that would love to draw near to you. Allow us to draw near. Um, And because we're not Jesus, it's okay to not be able to explain our grief fully. We don't have to. Drawing near and drawing out is good. It's a ministry of Jesus out of weakness that I think actually honors Jesus. But because Jesus is who he says he is, he does have something to say to these disciples on the road. What does Jesus give them? Well, first what we see is that he opens their eyes in understanding. Verse 27 is a lesson in the scriptures. Oh, To be a fly on the wall. There are no walls on the sleeve of Jesus as he's having this conversation with these two. He began with Moses and all the prophets and interpreted in all the scriptures 
all the things concerning himself. What was he showing them? He was showing how everything they had learned about God's movement in the world, revealed in the scriptures, were, act, were not reaching their end point in Jesus' death. They were reaching their culmination in his death and resurrection. All the scriptures were about God's plan to rid the world of everything that causes us grief. Accomplished through Jesus, that it was pointing to him the whole time. And this is why he called them foolish. If you were alarmed by the change in tone in the story, then I want you to know they probably were too. But he calls them foolish and slow of heart to believe what the prophet said. Because the irony of this whole story is that Jesus is saying, you think that the cross is the reason hope is dead. And what I am telling you is that this was pointing to the suffering and death of Christ the whole time. The cross is the reason that hope lives. Because verse 26, it was necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory. It was the plan all along. And you can almost hear the gears in their heads turning when they heard these things. And they're beginning to wonder, are you telling me that Jesus is alive right now? And in God's glory. Are you telling me that these strange reports that we've heard this morning might be true? And that's why it's important to see that Jesus doesn't offer them knowledge or good teaching. Doesn't just offer them those things, but he also offers them intimacy with himself. Luke shows us over and over again, it is a major theme in Luke about how the most intimate relationships with Jesus are formed around the context of taking a meal together. And that's why it's no mistake that the passage says that their eyes were opened when Jesus took the bread and he blessed it and he broke it and he gave it to them. Twice in this passage, that as soon as he did that action. And the verbiage here in this passage is very similar to the language used when Jesus fed 5,000 people and called himself the bread of life. To the words that Jesus said went into the recording of Jesus breaking bread and giving it to his disciples over the Lord's Supper. Just as Jesus feeds his people before his death, so he continues to feed his people after his resurrection. Same things. For all time, he fed his disciples with understanding when he unpacked the scriptures to them, and he fed them with intimacy when he broke the bread with them. And then what happens? He vanishes. Their knowledge of who he is becomes sufficient. And then they immediately get back on the road. And they head back to Jerusalem because this amazing report about what they have witnessed about the the risen Jesus has to be shared. And they find themselves in the room with the 11 apostles and other disciples, those that they were, and they're sharing 
uh, multiple reports now about the truth that Jesus is now resurrected. Can you see how the, the, the reality of Jesus' resurrection is a sense of loss that came from the grief that they were understanding earlier in the day? They were fragmented in grief. And yet here they are in one room together in their leadership. And here they're learning that God has been at work the whole time. And that he indeed can be trusted both in life and in death. And they had lost their hope for the future. But now they're looking to their future together wondering. The resurrection of Jesus attends to our grief in profound and specific ways. And that also includes how we think about death. In 1 Corinthians, about the resurrection itself, you really need to read it as soon as you go home tonight, okay? Uh, You need to look at it. He talks about uh, the reliability of the resurrection. Shoot, maybe we should teach on it. He tells us the ways that the resurrection affects how we understand death itself. And I'm not kidding. He changes the word to death. And he calls it sleep. He says, even though death remains, and then he says this, that there's going to come a time when the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable, for this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and the mortal body is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? It is an impermanent state. It is sleep. There's an incredible story in Acts chapter 7 where Stephen and the disciples who were in this room as they gathered together again. Um, uh, he was one of those who, were, who was chosen to be one of the first deacons in the church. And like Jesus in Acts chapter 7, he was in trouble with the religious establishment. Just like Jesus, they too were threatened and they were intimidated by the things that he was preaching. And yet he would not relent on him to death. And, And when they came at him, the most amazing thing happened. After crying out, just like Jesus, for for the forgiveness of God extended to those who were killing him. This is it. And he gazed into heaven and he saw the glory of God and he saw Jesus standing at the right hand of God, alive, standing, interceding for him on his behalf in those very moments. Jesus was not dead, but he was taking care of him. And then the story ends with his stoning and and the text says, I'm not kidding, the text says, He went to sleep. And that's our hope. That that when we die, it doesn't hold us forever. We will wake up from a sleep. Forgiven and free, our bodies imperish a faith that was not lived in vain. For one reason and one reason only. Because Jesus is not dead right now. And he's ever living to intercede for you. Oh, death, where is your victory? Let me pray. 
But Lord, even as we hear the truth of these words and we wonder at them and our hearts are swelled at the gratefulness of all that you have won on our behalf, I pray that you would help us to trust them and move us to an even increasing affection for you. Give us hope in these things, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen.